Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Thanks for stopping by. It's Tyson here. I'm your host. Today in the show, we are joined by Dr. Stuart McGill. Now, check this out for a resume. I was so excited to speak to this guy. I'd been admiring his work for a little while now, and I mean so have a lot of people from around the world. So Dr. McGill is from the University of Waterloo, where he was a professor for 30 years. His lab and experimental research clinic investigated issues related to the causal mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pain people, and enhance both injury resilience and performance. His advice is often sought by governments, corporations, legal experts, medical groups, and elite athletes and teams from all around the world. He's produced over 245 peer-reviewed scientific journal papers, several textbooks, and many international awards including the Order of Canada in 2020 for leadership in back pain area, and he's mentored over 37 graduate students during this scientific journey. During this time, he taught thousands of clinicians and practitioners in professional development and continuing education courses all around the world. He continues as the Chief Scientific Officer for BackFit Pro. Difficult back cases and elite performers are regularly referred to him for consultation. I mean, it's no surprise that this is such an interesting topic. So many of us are at some point in our life impacted by back pain. In fact, it's the reason that this conversation even happened based on me having a little deadlift injury at the gym. We get into that in just a moment. It was a really, really enjoyable conversation. I messaged him after to let him know it was one of the most enjoyable podcasts I'd ever done. I really appreciated not only his expertise, but his ability in communicating the knowledge that he had. He was a a really, really interesting guest. I've got to let you know, just because I don't want you guys to wonder what's happening. I'm in the process. I've just got a brand new microphone for this podcast, and there was ever so slightly an echo only on my side of the recording. Now, I've done all the editing I can. I've had the best people I can to look at it, and there's still a mild echo only when I speak. But the good news is, and the reason I had Dr. McGill on here was because I wanted to only ask a few questions and let him talk. So 90% of the conversation is crystal clear audio from him, And during the time that I speak, you might notice a slight little echo. I just wanted to let you know it's noted. I'm doing my best to fix it. uh, And next podcast is going to be crystal clear. But for now, let's welcome him to the show. I hope you enjoy this conversation with myself and Dr. Stuart McGill. What are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual. Zero. Nothing. For a little bit of context for those listening, I found out about you about three or four months ago. And I found out about you because I was at the gym like I am a couple of times a week and I was working through a little bit of legs and a little bit of lower back and I was midway through a deadlift exercise and I thought, oh, gee, there's a little bit of weakness here, a little bit of tenderness. I thought I won't intensify the weights too much more. I'll I'll stay a little bit lighter. So I just went up to 70 kilos. I'm not sure what that translates to in pounds, but I got about three reps in, which should usually be relatively comfortable. And I thought, okay, something feels really off here. It wasn't too painful, but I thought I'll just leave that exercise there. And then the next morning I woke up and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is so much more painful than anything I'd ever experienced in the gym before. From the best of my understanding, I I think I'd done some form of a strain and my inability to move around gave me such an appreciation for spinal health that I'd never had before that I started to go down the rabbit hole of your work and it didn't take me long to realise that people come to you for a wide range of reasons, for a wide range of injuries. 
From the outset, is there a particular injury or a particular problem that a lot of the population that you see is coming to you for? Is it a one-off injury that they've done? Is it just a build-up of uh, poor posture for a long period of time? We've asked me several questions in there. Uh, The only reason anyone would come to me is with back pain. Uh, I stay very tightly uh, within that wheelhouse. Um, So uh, having said that, uh, I can give you a comment on uh, your deadlift injury, if you like, and we can start there. That sounds great. Okay. You were doing deadlifts. Deadlift is an exercise tool. What was the goal? Well, my mindset going into that exercise was strength through the lower back and through the quads. Okay. So uh, that gives me a context now to discuss that. Um, Let's examine the word strength as it relates to back health, lack of pain and that kind of thing. Would it surprise you if I said the scientific literature really doesn't show a strong link between having a stronger back and having less back pain and and injury and uh, missing work and that kind of thing. In fact, a lot of people, as you personally just described, hurt their back in the effort to gain strength. Why is all of this? If we separate strength from endurance, the ability to contract and use your muscles for a longer period of time without fatiguing, Endurance is much more linked to uh, having a so-called healthier back, less back pain, uh, more resilience against things like uh, days off work because of back pain. And and this was all started uh, mostly in in Europe and Denmark quite a number of years ago. But our uh, research has supported this very strongly. Um, I'll give a piece of scientific evidence uh, on that. We uh, took a group of men who were chroming car bumpers uh, for Chrysler Corporation. And and these things weighed uh, almost 50 kilos or 44 kilos, something like that. So fairly heavy. And these men lifted the bumpers throughout the day. Out of the 70 some odd men that did the job, so the exposure was somewhat controlled and the same among the workers, 24 or something like that had every year a week here and there where they missed work. They were disabled because of back pain. The rest of the year they worked through it. All the other workers never had disabling back injury. We spent about half a day assessing every single one of those workers. It was a very expensive study to conduct. We measured strength, endurance, spine range of motion, hip range of motion, how they moved when they uh, lifted objects, how they activated their muscles. We used instrumentation to measure that. Do you think it was the stronger or the weaker workers who had disabling back injury every year? Well, I'm going to guess it's the stronger workers. Correct. When we assessed the mechanism, the ones who had stronger backs and more injuries used their backs when they lifted. They would bend over and pull the bumpers with their back, typically. 
uh, so they were stronger. The ones who avoided back injury were were weaker when we tested them, but more endurable. They would lift with their hips and their legs, and they didn't break form. In other words, all started lifting with good form at the end of the work shift. But the ones who didn't have endurance broke form and started to lift with their backs more and their hips and legs less. So posture and movement form really mattered, but uh, several morals of the story came out of that. I'm not advocating to be weak. I'm not at all. We've worked with some of the strongest men and women of the world. But for those who do repetitive work, the key to avoiding injury is to have a foundation of endurance so that you don't break form and that good form uh, supports the strength. If, if that argument makes uh, sense to you. So, you know, you, you look at the very, well, uh, different kinds of sports that have emerged uh, over the last decade or two. Years ago, when you went to the Olympics and you saw someone do a clean and jerk or a snatch, Olympic lifts, they did one repetition. Then someone had the idea, we're going to make this into an athletic competition where men and women are going to do Olympic lifts to see how many reps that they can do. Well, that would never be done by an Olympic lifter because they strive to to create perfect form lifting once. They don't lift doubles and triples, etc., because they risk breaking form. So you can see why people who, who do Olympic lifts to the point of fatigue and then they break form, the uh, injury rate uh, goes way up. So... If you are strong and that's your objective, uh, it would be very wise to get good movement form and motor control uh, together with a foundation uh, of endurance. Um, I, I, I can talk about some Mr. Olympia competitors in that regard, too, if that's of any interest. Please, please. Okay. So, uh, along with strength goes muscle hypertrophy. Now the conversation changes a little bit, and it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I am working with a Mr. Olympia uh, competitor now, getting ready for the next round of competitions. And as you know, they have massive muscles. His back muscles, when we measure them on MRI, are double the size in his back of mine. What that means is if I had a stuck nut on my car wheel and I wanted to break the nut and get it to turn, I would double the wrench handle length, double my leverage, double the torque to get the nut. So bigger muscles create more torque on the spine. But if he lifts 100 kilo and I lift 100 kilo, but his muscles have double the wrench arm length, only half of the, the load on his spine. So people with very big muscles actually spare their joints lifting lighter loads. Do you see the logic? Mm. Yeah, but here's the rub. I've worked with a few uh, strong men and women and uh, bodybuilders, etc. cetera. Uh, at the end of their career, they have to return to civilian life to get their health back. And that means losing uh, a lot of weight. 
Well, while they were training with weights, putting a lot of mileage on their body and joints, the joints, when you um, damage a joint and loosen the ligaments, the joint actually gets a bit sloppy or the mechanical word is unstable. So a knee, for example, if you damage the ligaments, has shear movements in it like this, uh, indicating joint instability. So the joints lose their stiffness and stability. They now get these micro movements, but these bodybuilders are so massful, the muscles act like a guy wire system and a girdle around the joints, holding them all together. And then when they lose weight, they actually become painful now because they don't have the big moment arms and wrench handles and girdles around the joints anymore. And they've got so much mile on, mileage on their joints, they're all a bit loose and lax. So they start to ache when they retire and they think it's so unfair. And we'll see this with people who lose a lot of weight quickly as well. They, they get this achy back pain. And uh, if the person has been a heavy bodybuilder. Unfortunately, to not ache, they still have to do a little bit of weight training and muscle hypertrophy building to, to stop the ache until the body gradually regains that stiffness and maybe grows a bit of arthritis or whatever it is. But anyway, that's a funny story and a little bit of a counterpoint. But I hope that gives a frame of uh, strength. It's, it's wonderful, but don't make it your goal if your goal is to have a pain-free back. I had a friend of mine who was training as a bodybuilder for about five or six years and is a very big guy. He's probably five foot ten. I don't know exactly what he weighed, but it was – a lot more than what I weighed. And when we went to the gym to, uh, together, he was the guy you wouldn't want to stand next to just for aesthetics. He, he made me realize that I had a lot more development to do in the muscle department. But what was interesting was he, with him was at the same time that he was bodybuilding, he started to play tennis. And he had a background in tennis as a junior. And in one particular game, he was serving. He was a powerful server. And as he served, he felt a super sharp pain in his upper arm. And it was like a loud pop. And the doctor said he went in to get an x-ray and he completely snapped the bone in the upper part of his arm. And the explanation that the doctor gave to him was that the muscle strength that he had was far greater than the bone strength that he had developed. And perhaps due to a poor technique, as he served, there was a counterbalance there and the muscle overpowered the bone. The understanding I had around strength, and uh, feel free to correct me if this is incorrect, but... I thought as the muscle developed, the bone would develop as well. And I know this is a unique experience, but is there often with spinal health and using Mr. Olympia as an example, an imbalance between the strength of a muscle and the strength of the bone, which could cause injury even with good technique? Oh, absolutely all the time. Now, I, if I turn the camera, I'll just turn it and face it just for two seconds over to all of those models. There's 30 of them on the wall. Every one of those is a model of a very specific injury mechanism of uh, an athlete I've been asked to consult with. So I'm just going to uh, bring over uh, two models here if I can. And uh, let me see now. Um, I'm just... Uh, Let 
No, I just can't find the... Uh... Oh, there we are. I've, I've got two models now. So, what you just described is very common. We will see this in, uh, say a trainer gets a stay-at-home mom, they've got two young kids, the uh, young woman comes to the trainer, and the trainer has her deadlifting her body weight after three months. Here is a very common outcome of that particular scenario. When the person lifts, they squeeze the spine. So this is the sacrum and the bottom two uh, discs with an intervening vertebra. This is the end plate of one of the vertebral bodies, which isn't bone actually, it's cartilage. Inside is a spongy bone, and then the top and bottom of the vertebra are actually cartilage. They squeeze, and I'm just gonna squeeze the spine now, and I want you to watch the top here. This is filled with hydraulic gel, incompressible hydraulic gel. So when you squeeze the spine excessively in the person, it takes, a, it takes years to develop the bone to bear load. So you'll notice many of the world's strongest man competitors are older men. Some of the strong women of, of women's powerlifting, they're, they're, it's very, very rare to have a very, very strong youngster. Um, but I'm just going to squeeze and you see the end plate fracture, and the nucleus gel squirt up into the vertebral body. And this model was made. It's made by Dynamic Disc Designs, by the way. I'm just going to pull this plug so you have a viewport into the bone. This is a model of the fella who set the world record in squats, squatting more load than any human in history, Brian Carroll. Um, broke the end plate, and the nucleus is dyed chromium blue. So I'm just going to squeeze, and now you see that nucleus squeeze up into the bone. So that's a bone fracture and a vertical herniation, so to speak, but very much an example where the muscles gain strength much more rapidly than the supporting bone. So it's a common it's a common thing. See, when he explained this to me, I thought, ah, oh, that sounds like the doctor wasn't a hundred percent sure what he's explaining because I don't know where I got this understanding that bone would naturally just increase, and maybe it does to an extent with the strength of a, a, a muscle. But I thought it was a probably more likely a technical thing on his side. No, but muscle has an incredible rate of strength gain ability. Uh, collagenous tissues, tendons and ligaments less so, and uh, to, to create dense, strong bone uh, is longer still. Yeah. Yeah. I speak to a lot of people and uh, not everyone uh, is obviously involved in a gym or a sport, but the conversation around back pain, especially it's, it's like when you become aware of something, you seem to hear it everywhere. And the last couple of months, because back pain has become a a topic of interest to me, mainly for selfish reasons that I was trying to navigate my way out of the back pain that I developed through these deadlifts. It's blown my mind at how many people in conversations speak about dealing with it. In fact, Elon Musk the other day, I was laughing because he posted uh, something on, on Twitter which said, my favourite childhood memory is not having back pain. <laughs> and I thought, that's interesting. But, I mean, a comment like that, it's funny because a lot of people relate to the fact that that's true. 
a lot of us as we get older do start to whether it's uh you know deal with back pain or some form of pain in our body it's it's not an uncommon experience but but when it comes to may I, may I interject for one second and give some hope to your viewers there are, there are, so back pain is a symptom there are many pathways and causes of back pain many of them disappear as you get older i'm in my I'm on my last half of uh, in my 60s. I don't I used to have back pain when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, but I don't anymore. And many people don't. So if that helps uh, people like Elon Musk to know uh, the, the, the pain will stiffen out. Would you like to see a model of that particular mechanistic pathway and subcategory of pain? Let me show you this, uh, Tyson. So here's a very common uh, pain mechanism, and it has a very characteristic uh, pattern. So obviously a pelvis, a sacrum, uh, L5, the bottom lumbar vertebra, L4 and L3, and then three intervening discs. Now, if you damage a disc and have a little bit of a disc bulge, this is not a ball and socket joint. It's actually... Uh, fits this, the, the category, the materials cap category of a fabric. And if I took my shirt and I wanted to delaminate the fibers of my shirt, I would create stress strain reversals like this and slowly the fibers would come apart. They would delaminate. The issue with the disc is though, those fibers contain a pressurized gel inside. So that gel will find the delaminations if they're made and then they will seep through. Uh, imagine letting a little air out of your car tire. The car tire bulges on the road and it also is a bit sloppy. It's harder to drive the car with precision. It's unstable from a mechanical point of view. So consider this middle disc has been injured and it's lost a little bit of stiffness and it is now experiencing mechanical instability. This one is normal and this one is normal. Now I'm going to apply a general torque. Do you see that the majority of the micro movement is occurring at the joint that lost its stiffness? You cannot see this in an MRI or an X-ray or any kind of medical image. You have to go to a, a clinician who, who has the skills to assess it. So you see the micro movements occurring here, and you can see how they are triggering off different nerves by the majority of the movement occurring at the joint that's lost stiffness. So now that person lays in bed and the softer joint, the unstable one, it, it cocks off a little bit like that. So they'll wake up and they say, oh, I've got an ache down in my sacroiliac joint. I must have damaged my sacroiliac joint. No, when we test it, they've irritated a nerve that's referring to that location. Then they lay on the other side and their left toe goes numb. So do you see how uh, what we would do there is we would put a folded towel under their waist on one side or tell them straighten one leg and push the heel. In other words, adjust the posture and adjust the slight sheer 
uh, position of the unstable joint. And they say, oh yeah, my pain just changed. Well, these are all uh, markers of uh, an unstable joint. But here's the good news. Over time, that will stiffen back up again. I used to have one of, in fact, I used to have a couple of those joints that uh, were a little bit lax. But they go unnoticed because many people don't know how to assess for them and they're not seen on an MRI, for example. But when a person reaches their 60s and 70s, those have stiffened up and the pain is gone. So there's a good news for a person like uh, Elon Musk or some of your <laughs> uh, viewers who are experiencing an ache in a location and that location uh, changes. That is that is really good news. And it's actually, it's nice to hear it from a professional because the one thing that you do hear time and time again in relation to any part of the body is that as you age, things deteriorate. deteriorate. I mean, at some point, eventually, that's true. But for the most part, as you say, uh, some over range of movement in a joint like that can be healed. Is that healed through a, a weighted out process or a strengthened it up process or a, com a combination of those two things? What a fabulous question. It's all of those things, or it could be none of them. It depends on the individual person. So consider the spine as a flexible rod or a stack of fruit. Let's stack up now. What, what's a good Australian fruit? Uh, not a kiwi. That's from New Zealand. Uh, what would be a good fruit? I could be claiming another tropical fruit here, but I mean, we could go with a mango if you get to Northern Australia. Let's go, well, let's stack up five mangoes here and put a book on top. The thing would flop over. So a flexible rod with a bunch of collagen fibers or a material between them is not a great structure that would allow me to bend over and pick up my grandchild or a bag of uh, groceries or being a good Canadian, a box of beer. In any case, what we I'm trying to be slightly comedic here for you. <laughs> You're doing well. In any case, we have this beautiful architecture of core muscles, which form a guy wire system. So I have the abdominal wall in front, uh, the psoas quadratus lumborum, the obliques in the side, the erector spinae longissimus, iliocostalis multifidus in the back. And these form a guy wire system uh, around uh, this structure. And uh, now I've forgotten my point. What was the, <laughs> the topic? <laughs> you see why I've retired. Oh, no. Well, I was, I was just interested to know uh, in regards to that, that L5, that particular joint, which had, yeah, you gave the analogy of the flat tire. Right. So, so if, if I can organize uh, a bracing pattern, I can stiffen out that pain and arrest it immediately. So let's, uh, I might give a person a bear hug where I will push my, uh, I will put their uh, shoulder into my armpit. I'll grab across to the waist on the other side and I'll pull like this. And it creates the micro movement. If they say, oh, that's the sick feeling. That's my back pain. I'll say, good. I take my fingers and I push them laterally into the oblique muscles, lateral to the navel, and I'll poke them in and I'll say, now push my fingers out. Good. 
Now I repeat the shearing offense that made their back sick. And they'll say, oh, my pain just went away. So we just proved what the mechanism was. And now we've just taught them the antidote. So if they're going to pull on a door, pick up their grandchild, adding sufficient bracing, just enough to arrest that pain-causing micro-movement, was the uh, strategy that arrested their pain immediately. Now, people misinterpret that. Some will say, oh, I have to walk around braced all the time. No one ever said that. We teach them how to hover. Just stack your ears over your shoulders, shoulders over your hips, hips over your knees, and now stand with no muscle, completely relaxed. But if I'm going to stand and turn very quickly, that would cause possibly that unstable, pain-inducing behavior. But I learn how much bracing is required to take the pain trigger away, and I go off on my merry way. Now, most people have that innately. But a person with that particular pain mechanism who doesn't have a matched, uh, adapted control strategy would trigger pain. So you've probably heard of core stabilization exercises, and I'm not talking about the Australian transverse abdominis. I'm talking about other things, but nonetheless, uh, that would be... Uh, where the therapy would go for that particular subcategory of back pain. But anyway, uh, they don't have to wait until they're 60 for their pain to go away. Uh, some people, once they're shown that, can arrest the pain immediately. Uh, and we, we've published papers in orthopedic journals showing that in some people it's immediate. In other people, it's a process of tuning it. Uh, anyway, there's a thought yeah you, you, you touched on this at the start of that answer where you referred to the posture and how posture can be adapted to take pressure or or just help the healing process with that particular injury but but posture was something i was interested in um in a broader level for a variety of reasons and uh, i think i sent that to you as a question i was curious about and the reason for that was i had an exercise physiologist on here the other day um an australian guy john quinn and one of the things that he was speaking about was, uh, you know, some of the lifestyle factors uh, in, in specific regards, we were speaking about the mobile phone and how kids, adults who are on their phone for six or seven hours a day, constantly in this position, he was speaking about the weight of the head and the pressure that that can put on the spine. And as he was speaking, I thought that's so interesting. Like I, I knew to look at that, it didn't look as though that was the correct posture to be in, but I'd never really thought about the physiological impacts of that on the spine. So I guess as a broader question, when it comes to posture in the general public, from from your perspective, what are some of the big mistakes we're seeing with the way that people either hold themselves or some of the habits that they're doing on a regular basis, which is negatively impacting the way they stand or the way they hold themselves? The answer is it depends, and I'm going to answer the question. I'm not avoiding it, but I am pointing it out that uh, there are many, many different postural perturbations that create different pathways to pain. So uh, I, for one, if I spend too much time on a phone looking down, I'll, I'll get a sore neck. Uh, but I have a neck injury history, whereas someone without that history would be very resilient 
uh, to doing that. The other issue is the link between posture and the symptom of pain and eventually injury. It's like smoking. When you do a study of young people who smoke, you will not find a link to cancer because it takes many years of exposure to smoke to manifest cancer. So there are studies that have concluded that posture doesn't matter. But when you look at the ages of the people uh, there, they haven't had time to that exposure to uh, get the injury. Um, and the other thing is they do a study on what's called nonspecific back pain. Um, bending forward for one person. Well, I'll, I'll let me give you an example of a young person who says sitting at the computer for 20 minutes causes my back pain and my right toe to go numb. The cure for it is to go for a walk for 20 minutes. And then you take their father and they say, sitting at the computer relieves my back and going for a walk causes my back pain. So there are two completely different postures with completely different outcome. So you see, if we studied them both and put them into the same scientific study, you would conclude there's no effect of posture. But if you subcategorize based on posture, for example, if a person slouches and that causes their pain, and they slouch, posture is highly related to their pain. If you have a person who extends, they arch backwards, they reach for a shelf, something on the shelf, that triggers their pain. And if you uh, only look at those who are extension intolerant, of course, you see the statistical link. So the key to all of this from a scientific point of view is to subcategorize the pain mechanism, and then you'll see very specific types of postures. But let me um, show you some, some very interesting tests. We would have someone just simply sitting on a stool. They would take their hands, grab the seat pan of the stool, and pull up, say, 10 kilo on each arm. And they might say, no problem, doesn't cause any pain. Good. Drop your chest a little bit. Oh, no, no pain yet. Good. Now roll your pelvis back and flex the low back. Oh, yeah, there's my pain. Pull your chin down to your chest. Oh, that's even worse. Now roll your pelvis. Oh, my pain just went away. So there might be a test for determining if that particular individual does that posture matter for them. There are arguments on social media about this funny thing called butt wink. Do you know what butt wink is? No. Okay. So it's for kids who are uh, in the gym. They put a bar on their back and they're doing squats. And some people will say everybody should be able to squat their buttocks down to the ground. But you get so far, and then if you watch my low back, my low back rounds out. So that's the butt wink as you hit the bottom. Some will say, butt wink is okay. And then the next one says, well, no, it isn't. That's my pain trigger. Well, if we took a, uh, a bar, and I'll, I'll just take a, a dowel as an uh, example here. And if I put the dowel on my back, and I simply went back and forth 10 times like that. If that causes your pain, do you think posture and butt wink matters for that individual? 
I would guess so, yes. You just proved it absolutely does. End of argument. So, you know, uh, a lot of these things are solved by understanding that back pain is multifactorial, has many different pathways, but it can all be tested for. And uh, it gives people an awareness of what they need to do to avoid the cause of the pain and what specific rehab they should be doing to retune their body to gain some pain-free resilience. And then if they want to get some athleticism back, should they be building strength or endurance or improving the quality of the movement uh, or developing power or whatever it happens to be to uh, give them the performance that they're looking for. But there's a little bit of an essay, uh, probably bigger than what you wanted to answer that question. No, not at all. Not bigger than what I wanted. It's uh, it's very it's very good. I, I'm a very visual learner as well, so I appreciate some of the uh, the visual cues you bring into the podcast. It's, it's good. It really helps me understand what it is that you're saying. One, one thing, and I'm, I'm kind of dancing back here, but I think it's related to uh, what you were saying there, is um, obviously there's certain triggers for certain people. As you say, for one person, standing up and going for the walk can cause the pain. The other person sitting down for an extended period of time can cause the pain. There's a lot of conversation, especially here in Australia, in some of the wellness industries about how important it is that we don't sit down all day. But then you'll go to the supermarket here and I'll say to the girl behind the counter, uh, how are you going? She's like, I need to sit down. I've been standing up all day. And the standing up desks over here are really popular. At the moment, I'm sitting down, but I try not to be in this posture for too long because Sort of uh, to continue what you were saying, I find if I'm sitting down for too long, that's where pain for me starts to increase. Uh, it, I'm going to guess based on the fact that I know there's not one size fits all when it comes to health in general, but also to back pain. Are there any general guidelines throughout the course of a day that a person in perhaps an office job who is just by the nature of the office that they work at, sitting down all day, not really exposed to too much physical movement, are there any practices or movements or poses uh, that they're able to implement into their daily routines to try and help alleviate some of the pain that they're, that they're experiencing? My mum, for example, she works as a personal assistant to a doctor at uh, a regional hospital here, and I went and visited her at her work a couple of weeks ago. Great little office, but she's sitting down pretty much from the time she gets in to the time she leaves. Before work, she'll go in, she'll, uh, she'll go outside and go for a little bit of a walk. But to look at the way that the office is set up, it surprises me that it's a doctor's office because you would think that health and mobility would be a big focus of a doctor's office. But, I mean, this is going down a slightly different rabbit hole. A couple of the doctors there were well and truly overweight and the office wasn't set up to help maximise any hum, uh, you know, good, good physical movement. So I guess my question at the end of all of that is what can a person in my mum's situation do to try and inject a little bit of mobility and release some of the pain throughout her day. Well, so many thoughts were moving through my mind. It's so ironic uh, when I would attend international spine meetings with uh, scientists and spine surgeons and rehab specialists, etc., and we would sit for four days and uh, people's spines were just screaming. It was uh, uh, terrible. Uh, practice. But uh, having said all of that, 
let's go back to a principle. A lot of pain comes from stress concentrations and you build up stress concentrations when you don't move. And in order to move them and alleviate them, you perform a movement. And I'll just give you a quick example. If you lay in bed and don't move, eventually you will become uncomfortable. And if you ignore the discomfort and you don't move, you then will become painful. And if you ignore the pain and you don't move, you will become injured. And it's called a bed sore. And it comes from a concentration of stress. So very early on in our investigations, we developed a technique to map stress concentration throughout a person's torso. And not surprisingly, their particular pain was almost always related to that stress concentration. Now, that might have been elsewhere. That's a special situation, and I can talk about that if you like. So now let's talk about relieving the discomfort, the pain, and the injury. And it was through movement. All the person had to do in that bed example was to roll over and go to a uh, new position. So sitting creates stress in the posterior annulus. Uh, it, it does put pressure on the posterior part of the nucleus. And if there's been some uh, delamination of the collagen fibers, there's a chance that bulge could press on a nerve root. How do you migrate the stress concentration? You stand up and change the shape of the back from a slight flexion to now a more neutral position. Now you'll notice that when people stand, some have a really pronounced hollow in their low back. Some have a very flat low back. We did another study. It was the most downloaded study out of the physical therapy journal uh, for the whole year that it was published. And we found that those who have a flat back stand with less stress concentrations. But when they sit down, they get even more stress. The ones who have a very big hollow in their low back, they stand in elastic stress. And when they sit down, they relieve <laughs> uh, the, the stress. So do you see how um, my, my good friend, Bill Maris, who's a professor at uh, Ohio State down in the U.S., he says for back pain in these discussions, genetics loads the gun. What curve do you have? What are your body segment proportions? What collagen types do you have? All these kinds of things. Genetics loads the gun. Exposure pulls the trigger. Exposure to specific postures and loads and activities will cause some people with certain genetics and shapes, etc., to now become injured or painful or whatever the case may be. And then the psychosocial milieu around their lives influences how they deal with that pain. And he showed how people with certain personality profiles, people who have a very overt personality, for example, their mental stress doesn't convert into muscle activity and clenching down. Whereas a more timid kind of personality on, say, a Myers-Briggs personality profile, for example, if you yell at them or stress them or give them stress at work, it's a very visceral 
physical reaction. They tensen up, their, their trapezius muscles elevate, and they, and they crush their joints. And uh, he was, so, you know, th there's no separation in our world between uh, the mental stress, the physical stress. These are stress concentrations that depending on the pathway, and I've described several of them now in this podcast, will lead to uh, discomfort and then pain and then an injury. So uh, in the case of your mother, we would have to have a, a fairly thorough assessment to understand her personality, the pressures in her world that cause her to react to pain specific ways. I mean, there are some people who just ignore pain. Well, that's just as bad because pain is a warning sign. And if you ignore putting your finger on the hot stove, you're going to become injured. And so pain is a purpose. And uh, it's just as bad to ignore it in some people and in some situations as it is to magnify it and become overly uh, fussed about it, if you know what I mean. So anyway, there's uh, I'd, I'd have to know about her current physical condition. Uh, I would need to know the lever lengths, which we started this podcast talking uh, about. The, I mean, I tend to have long limbs. I look like a damn spider monkey. I've got long arms, limbs, and a short body. And uh, I was laughing. My, my buddy the other week came over. I towered over him. And when we sat down, we were the same height because he had a long body. So very different uh, lever ratios and uh, my injury history would determine this, as would your mother's. So a sit-stand, great idea, migrates the tissues back and forth. What kind of pre-existing lordotic curve does she have in her back? Here's an interesting one for you. When we did uh, uh, athletes and office workers quite a number of years ago, some of the athletes were wearing these, at the time, these designer jeans, which were very tight. And when they would sit down, the tight jeans that accentuated their athletic build when they were walking and standing tightened right up and bound up their hips. So when they sat down, their pants bound up their hips and they had to flex their spine over because their hips didn't move. Their back pain was from their choice of jeans. Um, some women, and not so much these days, I suppose, but wearing tight skirts would bind up their hips and their knees instead of being able to spread their knees apart, alleviate the sciatic nerve, uh, for example. Um, you know, I, I don't do well sitting with my knees together. That gives me uh, great discomfort and pain because of the genetics of my hips. Anyway, I could go on and on and on and on. But if we could see your mother and perform a thorough assessment, I think we would converge on an understanding of her pain pathway, give her specific movement hacks, lifestyle hacks uh, to uh, avoid the cause, give her specific exercises. Maybe she needs a little bit of mobility in her hips. Maybe she needs a little bit of stability in her spine. I, I, maybe we need to do an ergonomic adjustment on her uh, workspace. All of these things. Uh, we might build in interval walks throughout her day. Uh, you know, it, it just doesn't end. But, um, you know, I'm, I, this is why I had to write textbooks on this, 
if it was simple, it wouldn't be a problem. But uh, it, 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 it is complex, but it is not insurmountable. Uh, yes. Yeah. No, it's a, I had no doubt coming into this conversation, it was going to be a nuanced conversation because I know uh, from my background in running that there's very rarely a one size fits all approach to, well, not just running, but, but uh, almost everything is, is what I understand. Shoot, one thing that you, you touched on at the start of that answer, which I, I find really interesting, and until the last couple of years, I'd never really heard many specialists look at the idea of the actual uh, mental stress or the, the, the stresses in your life and the impact that that had on your overall physical health. And it was really interesting to even hear you mention Myers-Briggs because you speak to someone with, with any physical pain and a lot of the time I know myself as a runner, if there's any pain in my body, my, my first point of call is, okay, did I tweak anything on my run? Was, have I increased the mileage too quickly? Have I increased the pace? Are my shoes different? I'll look at all the physical things and I guess for a runner a lot of the time that would make sense. But the way that stress is expressed through the body, I've found interesting. I was in Nepal about uh, in 2015, and I remember the Sherpa. I was there for a month, and the Sherpa that I was walking with, I, I spoke to him about stress levels in Nepal, and he said, oh, the stress levels in my community don't really exist. And I said, oh, explain that to me. He said, well, uh, in the West, in Australia, I bet you go to an office job and you'll sit down and you'll get stressed. And you've still got seven hours left of your job. So that stress isn't really expressed anywhere. It just sort of sits there and your body's forced to just deal with the stress in whichever way that it can. He said, whereas when I get stressed, if I have an argument with my wife or there's a stressful situation, I've got to go out and I've got to walk for seven hours during the day. And he said for, for him and from what he could tell the people around him, he found that a really good way to just alleviate at least that mental stress from his body, which he felt alleviated a lot of the physical stress but you mentioned that and I could be going slightly on a tangent here when I'm referring to stress um, in the way that I am compared to how you were but it, it is definitely a factor but when a person comes to speak to you how much of the conversation is around lifestyle and dealing with the stresses that life is going to naturally throw our way in actually diagnosing an injury is it 50 50 with posture lifestyle factors or is it a, a very small part of the conversation uh in one person it's a huge part of the conversation and in the next part it is zero i can give you so many examples uh there's a new netflix series on arnold schwarzenegger uh watch yeah. it you'll get a very I have a great documentary on that question. And wasn't it interesting that uh, everything to him is cured by hard work and mental discipline and focus. Stress doesn't exist. You just go in and get the job done. And for that kind of personality, that works. That kind of personality would crush some other people who just can't get it organized. We have uh, here at BackFit Pro, and because of our, our background, we deal with um, probably more than most combat athletes. Uh, these are people who their sport requires them not to mince words here, but they fight for their lives. They could go into that cage and they could die or uh, be, be, be really uh, substantially injured uh, and disabled. They tear a valse fracture. It is uh, a rough game. 
It is so interesting. The talk about pattern recognition and putting personalities together. They, they you would think that they're brutes, Tyson, but they're not. Almost to a T, they love pain and stress. They thrive on it. They will tell you that that's the only time that they feel alive when they're in pain and close to death. Now they're living. And that's what they seek. So do you think I have a conversation with them about how they handle stress? No, they're seeking it. And my job is to control the disabling back injury because they're coming from coming to me because they can't train because they, they've got a back injury or whatever. So you see that conversation is entire. We're feeding that monster. And then the next person comes in and my job, I'm a play actor. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm very rough uh, because I need to get that response and create that milieu to get the result for that particular personality and athlete and etc. And the next person, they're truly hurting. They, they they don't need any of that. They need and deserve love in, in the most kindest form and show them that they will not beat this out of their body. They're going to have to romance it out of their body. And I can give you a very a good example of that pain pathway. Or would that be interesting for you? Please. So have you heard of myofascial kinds of uh, pain syndromes? I don't think so. No. Oh, okay. Or fibromyalgia or anything like that. No. All right. These are pain descriptions where you know, a patient will fill a pain chart. There will be a little uh, figure of a person. And if you have stabbing pain, put an X. If you have an ache, put a circle. If you have numbness, put a check mark. If, you know, and they have these, you know, odd pains all over their body and they fill it. And then the psychologists get involved and they say, oh, what a bizarre pain pattern. What a bizarre presentation. You're nuts. The pain is in your head. And it's a terrible thing to label on someone because almost every person who has these fibromyalgic kinds of pain presentations they're a victim of trauma. Now, it might be something like they were in a car, they were driving or they were the passenger, the other person died in the accident and they survived. Or it might be a, a sexual or a physical abuse that they grew up with. Or there's some kind of trauma that rewired the brain's reaction to fascial tension. So under the skin, there is a big bag that surrounds all the muscles. There are little bags that surround each muscle and even smaller bags that connect each fiber. This whole system, this fascial system, is connected in a series of sheets. So I've had people where I can take their arm over their head and then if I do this, their left toe rages with fire. And then I back off. So... You love that pain out of the person 
You don't beat it out of them with more challenging exercise. You teach them very gentle movements and the brain has a kinesthetic system. All the joints and structures have sensors of pressure and force, chemical uh, composition in some cases. And the brain gets rewired and interprets these with, with quite different uh, expressions of pain. But we teach them how to move without causing the pain and slowly expand the repertoire of uh, movements. And that's how we uh, get through that particular uh, type of pain. So to answer your question, there's uh, where I have to create situations where the athlete needs pain to perform. The next person, absolutely, we must not trigger pain. They cannot work through it. It's, it's loving it out of their body and uh, ch changing. So the adaptation process determines that spectrum that I think is, is going to answer your question. It's, it's, it, these are amazing conversations to have. I, you're bringing your, I don't often talk about this, but you're, you're bringing it out of me. I'm on the verge of tears, by the way, because I'm thinking of some of the patients who, uh, you know, we, we've had to go through these and the things that they reveal and, and the torture that some people have inside them. And then some clinician tells them they're magnifying their pain that's in their head and it drives them to suicide. Hmm. You know, in, uh, in 2017, I, I lost a, a really good friend of mine. Uh, his name was Phil. He had, he had cancer and he was 49. And him and I, we, we used to catch up probably three times a week. He was a bit of a wild guy. And I would go down there because he always gave wild advice that I, I felt really suited my particular personality. And after he passed away, I, I can't remember an exact trigger of this, and I could be making it up. I'm not 100% sure, but I've, I've been to a number of specialists, like back specialists, show, uh, uh, exercise physiologists to try and get a diagnosis because uh, there was this, it's like if I was using that chart that you explained, I would draw a circle. They, they, they appeared in my upper back, and I only remember it after he passed away, like a dull ache in the that upper left part of my back, and it feels almost like a nerve, like a nerve thing. And and after having conversations with some friends and had a really good conversation with my wife about what might be going on, I just I had this inkling that maybe some form of grief had had been stored in my body. And I don't know whether this is a thing. I um feel uh, like purely speculating, but to to hear you speak about the way that life factors can actually have a, a physical impact on your body makes me think maybe it's not that crazy because there, there was definitely like just to, to open up with you and be honest there was definitely a lot of a lot of grief and a lot of sadness and I'm not sure like I'd never dealt with it to that degree before and I remember just feeling as though it was a little bit of a shock on my body for, for, from what you've heard in the research that you've done is there any correlation between things like well, well you've, you've said trauma but things like grief and sadness and, and just difficult periods in life on your actual physical health or do you think that chances are I'm probably missing a, a physical injury that's taken place and sparked a bit of nerve damage because the truth is either of those from my perspective could be true but from from the digging and research that I've done I'm kind of leaning towards uh like the the, the grief side of that but again I could be making it up well the answer to the the question is it could be either or it could be neither 
but a thorough assessment will reveal this. We would, uh, the assessment, if you, if you care to listen to our general uh, approach, I mean, we take in everything, how the person approaches us, the emails that they send. We're doing pattern recognition right out of the gate. Uh, if I happen to be in my kitchen, I watch them get out of their car and walk up the driveway. That tells me a lot uh, as how they come through the door, how they take their shoes off, all of these things. And then I ask them, I say, well, uh, tell me your story. How can I help you? Uh, I hope our job today is for us to converge on an understanding of your specific pain that will guide us on an opinion on what to do. Tell me your story. Sometimes the story is three minutes. Sometimes it's 45. And just let them talk and they will give you gold. And sometimes it's a terrible traumatic story full of grief. And I'm almost in pain as I'm on the verge of tears myself trying to be professional and, and not show those emotions. And, uh, and, and other times it has nothing to do with it. So there are some people who will allocate and default to the grief pathway because they've never had a thorough physical assessment. But a good assessment looks at all of these things. But we would then, I'd listen to the patterns and I would do some tests. I would systematically stress the different pain candidates and see if that replicates the pain. If it does, we do the opposite and see if we can take the pain away. If I can move the pain with motions, postures, loads, activities, there is a physical trigger. It's not to say that there isn't a grief or an emotional one. It may be there as well, or it may not be there at all. But if by the end of the assessment, which then turns into a session to give the mechanical opposite and their pain is gone, enough said. Now, that in of itself might be a cognitive behavioral therapy because you're empowering the person to move in a way. For example, if they get out of a chair and you've already determined that sitting slouched like this triggers their pain and to get out of their chair, their first move is to go into their pain and then stand up. But if you then show them, this time I want you to spread your knees Pull your feet back underneath you and sniff a little air and more move forward through your hips. You see how I've eliminated the pain trigger now. Pull your hips through and stand up. Oh, Doc, you're magical. That's the first time I've stood up without a pain trigger. Now they are psychologically empowered. I say, good, here's how you're going to brush your teeth. Bend down, put your hand on the countertop, brush your teeth, pull your hips through. The first time they didn't trick. So that empowerment of using movement hacks has now was that a psychological intervention or was it a physical mechanical? I would say it's both. And as a side effect, it was an emotional one as well. So there's there's in our world very little separation between is it physical, mechanical, chemical. Or is it emotional? Uh, very, very similar. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's really interesting just to hear how uh, far and wide the conversation goes around uh, physical performance, I guess you would call it. I noticed I, I had a really good running coach back in the day, and he was very good at this. Before you'd get into a session, I he had a, a good understanding of the Myers-Briggs, or a lot of the time I like the Enneagram. I'm not sure if you know the Enneagram, which has been very, very helpful in, in my own life in understanding personalities of not just me, but my wife and, and, and kids and things like that. But uh, yeah, I don't know why it's still a surprise to me how much of an impact this discussion has because I, I don't know, it, it just seems to be a new part of a conversation, one that I've noticed in the last 10 years. Maybe it's interest, but there seems to be far more of an appreciation for yeah, lifestyle factors and, and how it impacts uh, impacts physical health. I find you so fascinating. It's it's one of these situations where it's a shame we live on the other side, almost exactly on the other side of the world. I wish we were having a beer talking about this and, and eating some Australian mango fruit. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, think of your running days and those days where you needed to win and your, 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 your mind frame just wasn't there. You couldn't get the depth of endurance and strength and mental toughness on that day to go through the wall and keep going and, and, and win. And then other days you could, you know, I, when, when we work with strength athletes and what it takes to lift a thousand pounds, the mental state to dense, you know, strength is a thought. Movement, it all begins as a thought. And a strength athlete on the day that they have to perform have to go to this very, very dark space mentally to create the density of neural drive, then convert that to nerve pulses and send it through their body and stiffen and taken out all the slack and, and get, you know, beat down all the natural fuse boxes. But you know, a runner hits the wall with pain. It's a different type of fuse box, but they certainly have it. And 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 you know that the, on those days when the neural isn't connected to the emotional, which isn't connected to the physical, you're not going to win. And uh, it, it, you know, these are fantastic uh, yeah. conversations to have. Coaches need to know this. Therapists need to know this. And yet there's too many people these days who, who just dismiss all of this. Oh, you, the pain is in your head or there's nothing on your MRI or you've got a disc bulge. That's it. And, uh, oh. well, I, I, as I tell our therapists, it keeps you employed. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. That's very true. That's very true. It's a, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's one of those conversations that, you realize, as you say, it keeps you employed because there's so many different angles that you can come at the conversation from. I always say this about stand-up comedy. What what works on one night, it blows my mind because it doesn't necessarily work on the other night. And people say, oh, why, why was it funny last night and it wasn't funny tonight? And you're like, well, there was a certain tension in the audience or there was, you know, the way the room was set up or the frame of mind that I brought in or um, – the pain that I felt in my in my body during the time that I was supposed to be being funny. It's a, it, for me, that is what keeps me coming back to stand-up comedy. And you speak about, uh, you know, this particular field that you've been involved in for a long time now with the same regard that I feel I speak to uh, stand-up comedy. And it's, 
I, I think it is the fact that it's hard to put your finger on one straight answer every single time that makes it so interesting to keep coming back and talking about it. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld has a wonderful little essay on that topic. It's, uh, you know, when you meet a master of the craft, they could be a comedian, they could be a spine specialist, they could be a, a, a taxi driver, doesn't matter. If they're a master of the craft, they've got something very, very special that makes them masterful and, and 95% of their colleagues don't have it. And, you know, you run into these people in, in all sorts of situations, criminals, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a master criminal, talk to them. And uh, it's, it's one of the joys of my line of work. I, I get to work with some real celebrities and masters of, of things that people do, and they all have it. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. But but they have it. Yeah. Stu, I'm aware of the timer. I told you we'd catch up for an hour and we've gone a little bit over, so I'll, I'll wrap it up there so you can go and enjoy your, I'm guessing, your evening. It is. I've I've just got one more call scheduled in uh, seventeen minutes. Well, hey, I'll let you. I'll let you get up and have a break before then. But uh, hey, so grateful for the conversation. And uh, I know we had a couple of talking points that we were keen to talk, and I'm glad. I hope you are as well that we pivoted off them a little bit because that was a really uh, really enjoyable conversation for me personally, and I can imagine the audience who who seemed to really respond to these kind of conversations is is really going to appreciate it as well. So hey, I appreciate your um. Uh, or your professionalism, I appreciate your, your wisdom and I also appreciate your, um, your broad perspective on, on the impact uh, of the human body and, and thanks for the education on that. It was, it was really eye-opening to me. So thanks for stopping by, man. Well, thank you, Tyson, and, and thank you for bringing out of me uh, things that not too many people do. Awesome. I appreciate it. We'll leave it there. I'll see you soon, Stu. I'll see you later, everybody.